This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. You know, I love podcasting, but in addition, I am a voracious consumer of podcasts as well. And among the many I listen to are a weekly series of classes by someone who I've known about and whose works I've read over the years, really for decades already. And that's Rabbi Dr. Aaron Rakefet. Rabbi Rakefet is, as you'll hear, someone who defines himself as a Rebbe, as a teacher of students. He's been teaching Torah for 62 years. It's hard to find anyone with that longevity. But he's a fascinating, multifaceted person who is also a historian, who is an author on many different subjects. He's done some riveting biographies of his own Rebbe, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, of Rabbi Eliezer Silver, who was a great 20th century rabbinic personality. He's written a scholarly memoir, which uses his own life as a springboard to explore themes in modern Jewish history. And he has really lived through so much of that. He really embodies a great deal of Jewish history in our generations. He interacted with so many great Torah scholars. He lived through a renaissance of Judaism, both in America and then coming to Israel already 50 plus years ago and watching the flowering of the state and of the religious community. He was engaged deeply in the struggle to educate and liberate Soviet Jewry. He'll describe that decade-long odyssey, as well as 15 years serving in the IDF, speaking as a lecturer all over the country and all over the world. He has students spread worldwide who, of course, continue to stay connected and to keep him abreast of trends and happenings all over. And so speaking with him really is a walk down Jewish memory lane. When we met, it was midnight, my time, and I had just finished our annual fundraising campaign. I was completely exhausted, but this was the time we were able to schedule. It was 7 a.m. in Israel, and I knew that this wasn't going to go just an hour. It was going to go significantly longer, and I steeled myself and really pushed through because this was such a treat and such a privilege. Unlike most interviews where I interject with quite a few questions, in this case, I really let Rabbi Rakefet just go almost monologue for most of the episode because he's really giving us a history lecture in the first person and I just find it riveting. He has unbelievable recall of the micro details of things that happened to him 50, 60 years ago, names, addresses. It's really incredible to observe and to absorb. Just a small heads up for those who are less familiar with some of the Hebrew and some of the kind of inside baseball terminology that tends to be thrown about. There is a little bit of that in this particular episode. I didn't want to interrupt the flow too much, and Rabbi Rakefet occasionally spices his conversation with Talmudic terminology or some Hebrew words, and I sometimes translate it, sometimes just let it slide. I think even if you don't have all of that background, you'll really get the gist of everything and appreciate this interview just as much as anyone else. A reminder, as always, to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. 
subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts. Please share this with others so that they also may learn about our wonderful podcast here at Jews You Should Know. Comments, questions, and sponsorships available by emailing JewsYouShouldKnow at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with decades-long Torah teacher, author, historian, living embodiment of Jewish history, and most of all, Rebbe, Rabbi Aaron Rakefet. We are here with Rabbi Aaron Rakefet, formerly Arnie Rothkoff back in the old days, and we'll hear a little bit about that. But uh, Rabbi Rakefet is a prodigious speaker, lecturer, a scholar of rabbinic literature, and above all, a Rebbe, uh, which is a word that is difficult to translate, but communicates so much about uh, who he is as a person. Welcome, Rabbi Rakefet. Welcome to you, and a very happy Hanukkah. Hanukkah Sameach to you as well. We are here recording on the first night of Hanukkah. For me, it's the first night. For Rabbi Rakefet, who's in Israel, it's the first morning. We'll see whenever we release this, may or may not be still Hanukkah. But nonetheless, Rabbi Rakefet, where are you from? I've heard, you know, in some of your talks that you grew up in the Bronx. And we had recently on this program, Dr. David Lukens, who was another Bronx Nick, uh, although probably a bit after your time. But tell us a little bit about that upbringing. I'm a third-generation American, and uh, basically only alive because of a telegram that arrived in 1905 or 1904, meaning all my grandparents came to America single teenagers, 16, 17, 120 years ago. And my Zayda, my father's father, whom I was the closest with, was very lonely and wanted to go back and book passage to sail back. And a few days before he was to sail, he got a telegram from his parents. Uh, Funya, that's the Tsar, has drafted you. It was the Russo-Japanese War. If you come back, you'll be in the army. So he stayed in America. He met my grandmother, and as they say, the rest is history. My parents were born in Harlem and uh, moved uptown to the Bronx, which was like considered moving from McQueen's to the five towns. It's hard to understand what it was like. There were over 700,000 Jews in the Bronx. I don't know if you had 10 families, Shomre Shabbat. It was total assimilation. I don't have to go further. So uh, that's where I grew up. Interestingly enough, my mother was one of six children. I later found out I have very big yichas to my mother's mother, Rama Kalvariski, that relates me to Rabbi Rebel, that relates me to the Rosh Hashidah of Hebron, Rabbi David Kohen. It's a very interesting family. A lot of the descendants are all in Habatzat Torah. And I think I have the record. I'm teaching Torah 62 years already, and I have uh, enough to teach for another 62 years without repeating the Shia. So the Rebunish should be kind to me. Amen. God willing. My mother was the only one of six children to have real Jewish feeling. My home was kosher. There was some sort of Shabbat. No one knew what Shabbat was. No one understood at that time you have to surrender to God. Everyone worked five and a half days. And I was a normal American kid, uh, started public school. And the teacher sent my mother and told her, your kid is too bright. I was in an Irish, a third Irish, a third Italian, a third Jewish neighborhood. And she said what the other children learn in a week, your son learns in a half hour. And this teacher told my mother, 
he needs a dual curriculum. You know that there's a yeshiva parochial school nearby. It was the only yeshiva in the Bronx, Yeshiva Benu Yisrael Salanta, which began in Harlem 105 years ago. And it had moved to the Bronx following the Jews. So in second grade, I was in uh, Salanta. And by seventh grade, I had Rebbeim, who didn't speak a word of English. I didn't speak a word of Yiddish. And uh, they changed my life. I probably would have been a frum kid, a medical doctor. But from seventh grade on, a day has not come by that I don't learn a daf gemara with Rishonim and Poiskim, etc. The Rebbe who had the greatest impact on me was Rabbi Chenich Fishman, my eighth grade Rebbe. Talmud Bufok of Rabbi Yerucham Levavitz, the Mira Mashkiach in the Mir. And he lived near me in the Bronx. So I actually was a Ben Bayad. I was very friendly with his eldest son, Heshi, Zichrono Levracha. I can tell you endless stories. One day I came home with Heshi and I said, Rebbe, you have gemach for my yindel on Americana Hank. I made out of your young son an American. He looked at me. I said, we're coming back from Yankee Stadium. And uh, he understood. Many decades later, generations later, I used the same line in Australia when I got up to speak, and there was a mob scene already, hundreds and hundreds of people. And I began my talk by saying, I became an Australian today, thanks to my students. They took me to an Australian football game. <laughs> and the audience went hysterical because they saw I was one of the crowd now. So um, I was accepted to Bronx High School of Science, which was the elite school. And for four years, I got correspondence as if I was a student there. Shows how well organized they were. But Reb Henech said to me, I'm living it in Yiddish. I'll try to say it in English. You're not ready yet to leave yeshiva. You have to learn more Gemara. And he arranged I should take a beginner with Reb Mendel Sachs, the Chavetz son-in-law, who was the Bochein in YU. And I got into the second shear of Michal Tatz. And at that time, that was MTA? That was BTA? Where, what was that? No, no, it was Tamil Academy. I don't, yeah, there was a BTA already, Manhattan, MTA. But it was the original school that my cousin founded in 1915, Rabbi Dr. Dovrevel, Tamil Academy. Those four years were the greatest four years of my life. I had fabulous teachers, uh, Rebbeim, the secular studies. And it was a natural for me to continue in Yeshiva College. And I need not add, by the time I was a junior in college, I thought that no Rebbe in the world was good for me except the Rav. I write about this in my seventh book in Washington, and I led a rebellion. We demanded the Rav should be our Rebbe, and uh, believe it or not, the administration caved in, the Rav caved in, and from that point on, he was saying two shayurim, one for the college kids in Gemara, and one in Halacha, Yoradeya or Rechayim, for the uh, Smicha program. And that lasted quite a few years until age and health caught up with him and he can only remain with the Gemara Shia. So I, want, I just want to rewind for a minute. First of all, when you talk about your mother being the only one of her siblings to have that native Jewish feeling and fostering that in your home, to what would you attribute that? I can only attribute it to great-great-great-grandparents who pleaded with the Rebbeinu Shalalem that something should remain in the family. My mother switching me to Salanta has impacted on, without exaggeration, tens of thousands of souls. First of all, in our own family, 
My mother has hundreds of direct descendants living in Israel. All my family ultimately uh, not only uh, became completely Torah observant, but outside of one brother who's Taka married to a Rosh Yeshiva's daughter, he has Yiches. He's married to Rabdov Sherman's daughter, who was Rosh Yeshiva in RJJ for many decades. Everyone lives in Israel. And let me just say, my middle brother, who's a world-famous medical doctor in his field of specialty, he has one daughter alone who has 11 children, and they, each one is married, and each one is going towards the... You can't imagine on my own family. It's exponential. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two, all the students that I've impacted in all the... Model HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I have endless letters, emails from people around the world who became Shem Torah Mitzvah, or Hitchasku, or went on to become Tomidei Chachamim, due to my shayurim over the decades. Another great influence, as far as this goes with Torah, was uh, Rabarin Cutler Lakewood. During high school, again, it's hard for everyone to conceive of it today, but the greatest pull, even in NYU, everyone was talking about Rabarin Cutler in Lakewood in the Kletzker Rosh Yeshiva and what he built and what he did. And I had a, an older chaver. I was very friendly with Rabbi Yehuda Parnas, should live and be well. And Duvi Hartman, who later, I don't want you to think of Duvi as he was in the 1980s, 1990s, but Duvi in the 50s was a Lakewood product, was a shame dover. And uh, he encouraged me, and I wanted to see Rabarin go to Lakewood. And uh, I write about this in Washington. I can tell you endless stories. I was very happy in Lakewood and wanted to remain but my parents were very upset I shouldn't go to college. And they were Americans, and I can understand them very well. We made a deal I would try Yeshiva College for one year, and if I don't like it, I could go to Lakewood. So I come to Yeshiva College. This is 1955. It was the first college class I'm ever going to attend in my life. And it's a new professor, Professor Louis Feldman. We didn't know who he was, what he was. Little guy walks in graduate of Harvard, taught at Trinity, and he hands out sheets history of civilization. Is the Torah correct? What is the Hammurabi code? What is the Hittite code? And I, I write about this, I, I, quoting Chazal, I felt, look what this man is going to teach. Where am I? What am I doing? Anyway, that was the greatest shayur, I'll call it, that I ever heard in my life. I've quoted it, worked upon it developed it further to many students. He showed the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach that all of humanity was influenced and endless scientific. And I'll never forget how we began. We who are believing Jews don't need any proof, but it always helps us in discussions with others if we can have scientific proofs. And boy, he went on. He became world famous, of course. We didn't know he was from. Then we heard rumors that he, he wasn't married yet. He's no tell you dying before he eats. Then we found out Shabbat, he's davening. He was a Balchiva from Connecticut. And wow, after that, I was the happiest guy in the world. And why you was fabulous in my time. I, again, I'm living in Israel. It's my 52nd Hanukkah here. So I, I don't want to say I know what's going on in Washington Heights, although they've brought me back a few times to give lectures there. But it was fabulous in my time. You went to yeshiva with Volusion. Then you, at three o'clock, you went upstairs, it could be Harvard. You could really come out of it, if you were serious, top people you rub shoulders with. 
I had the schut I learned with all three Soloveitchik brothers, Mori Rebbe Hamuvak with Yosef Dov, Rebarin Soloveitchik, who I became very close to when he was substituted for his brother, then in later years, then his son here through his son. I could tell you a year's worth of stories. And Rav Shmuel Soloveitchik was my chemistry professor. And after class, we used to bother him about his family, who was interested in chemistry. But, and he would open up, you know, about Rav Velvel, his uncle, about Rav Moshe, Rav Elia Oh, it was a wonderful experience. Oh, that's one part of it. The other part was, if you wanted any Yiddishkeit at all, any feeling of Shabbos, all you had in the Bronx was B'nai Akiva. And I went to B'nai Akiva. People walked very far to come to the East Bronx B'nai Akiva. There's one in East Bronx. There was one in Washington Heights. There was one on the Upper West Side. They were called Kinim. In modern Hebrew, we would say Smifim. And there, what I got in B'nai Akiva, you can't put a price on. In other words, the yeshiva gave me Torah. B'nai Akiva gave me purity. Money is not important. You have to be an idealist. And what can I tell you? One story, Miriam Beinhorn, exactly my age, later becomes world famous as Miriam Levinger. You have no idea who, who she was. Hard for me to say was, but it's the reality. So Miriam said to me, we were both madrichim. She was my wife's madricha, by the way. I, we were madrichim together. I was for boys, she was for girls. And uh, she said to me, Ani, you have a choice in life to be another social security number or to change the Jewish world after the Holocaust, the Torah world. And uh, you see what she did. It's unbelievable. She reclaimed all of Yehuda Shomron goes back to Miriam and Moshe Levengar. I'm sure you know the details, but these are facts. This is not the fairy tales. Another great influence on the Ibn-Aki was Meir Kahana. People think of him anti-Arab, anti-this, anti-that, but they don't realize there was, I don't agree with many of his viewpoints as far as the uh, anti, I have my, my Talmudim will explain to you my own feelings. Uh, we don't teach the hate, but if someone lifts a stone to throw at you, then you have to respond immediately. Baruch Hashem, we're alive and kicking today after the Holocaust. But Mayer was a tremendous influence, a tremendous speaker, tremendous dedication. I often explain that Mayer had two tragedies in his life that greatly influenced his thinking. One was in 1937, five of his relatives, he was a young kid then, maybe five years old, five of his relatives were killed in an Arab ambush. The family, his father's family was from Tzvat, and they were coming back from a wedding in Tel Aviv. They were ambushed and killed. No, I don't have to tell you, a five-year-old kid hears his cousins, his aunts and uncles killed. The other tragedy was in 1959, 1960. The New York Times, uh, after his death, did a, an in-depth study of Mayer, and they had it right. He was rabbi after he got his smicha and mir and he had a bachelor's and a master's already. And he went into the rabbinate, Howard Beach. And in Howard Beach, like many of the shuls in Brooklyn, there was no mechitza. There was mixed seating, might have even been separate seating, but no mechitza. Within a year, he had a lot of students around him, youngsters who were becoming from Shomra Shabbos, Kashrat, 
And one Thursday night, they went into shul and put up a mechitza. And when the Balabatan came in on Shabbos, they were hysterical. Sunday night, they held the meeting and fired him as rabbi. And that uh, left a deep scar on him. Part of life is, I may think I know everything and have all the answers, but when it's all over, there are other people who have other answers and other viewpoints, and you have to respect and be flexible, interact. Mayer was, could never interact, and that was very sad because when he came in Aliyah, they offered him a safe spot on the Gachal ticket, Gush Liberalium, which today would be the Likud, and he turned it down, that then the ideology is not pure enough. I often cry because I think he would have gone on to become prime minister had he had that ability to be a politician, which involves keeping the waters murky not clear and not dirty. This is life. I'm a Rebbe. I, I have the clearest waters in the world, but I don't change anyone. I just sit and learn and teach and give over my chidush and my insights, and I'm the happiest guy alive. I can't criticize anyone else, but he was in the real political world. He could have had tremendous impact. By the way, over the years I interacted, I remained very close to the family until this very moment. His two daughters were my students, Tova and Sipi, Sipi Zichon Levracha. Sipi married my Talmud, who Hanefesh Asha Siti Bacharan, Mark Kaplan, Harav Moshe Kaplan. Let me give him his title. And his son married my student from Michlala, the Israeli program, who had a PhD in biology. A girl from a second Israel Yisrael Hashniyah background, not from the elite. Her father, I think, was a Moroccan. I think he was mashkiach in a hotel down in Beersheba, this girl went on to get a PhD from Hebrew University. They should live and be well. That's son, very matzliach, a lawyer. She is in her field. His youngest son and daughter-in-law, who Loa Lena, were killed by the Arab terrorists, Yimach Shmam Bezichram, were my neighbors on Rehov, Berlin. After they got married, they rented an apartment right across the street from me. So over the, over the decades, I certainly remained very close. And Libby, Yishagadolach, his widow, I still remember their engagement party. Now, Bene Akiva was a tremendous influence, which gave me the strength in life, and I have to be honest, to go on Aliyah, to turn down all offers of a decent salary in Israel to remain a Rebbe, to go through very difficult years following the Yom Kippur War, the 70s into the 80s, it leaves scars when you don't have money for food and you're working two full-time jobs. And even there, I was a little, a little bit illegal because a college teacher, professor, is only allowed to work a job and a half. But I had two full jobs uh, that they worked out that the government couldn't uh, put me in jail. One at, for the Jewish agency, uh, BMT and Hong Gold, and one at Michala. And uh, the taxes were such, and the war bond loans, and you were lucky to be alive. I mean, we still don't understand how we survived uh, Yom Kippur War until today. Yes, uh, the Syrians should have been making Havdalah in Tel Aviv, and the Egyptians should have been making Havdalah in Beersheba. But Chazdei Hashem, Chazdei Hashem. But we lost a lot of people. I already lived here five years at the time, and I, I can tell you how many people we lost. But that ability uh, to remain in Israel, and uh, I, I told the class the other day, I was lecturing, uh, was on my Monday class. Sunday class is a very serious class. So Monday, I tell history of Torah right now in the United States. So uh, 
I was telling them about Turo College and how it began, and uh, Rabbi Dr. Bernard Lander, known to me as Bernie Lander, a man who changed my life afterwards on a postgraduate level, dean of Bernard Level Graduate School. So in January 74, when the first tourists started coming after the Antipa War, and our troops were still spread out, and it was very difficult, a shortage of eggs, etc., we all remember it well, those who lived through it. Bernie, and I can show you exactly where in the King's Hotel in the lobby, Bernie says to me, Arnold, he says, I have something for you. Dean of Students, Turo College, was just getting underway. $50,000 a year will relocate you, pay for everything, set you up in an apartment. All right, let me tell you. Thank God I had the cycle to say no. And I love Bernie. I mean, if he remained like this until his death, but I know where I belong. So uh, that's it. Now, what happened was I got smicha 23. That's at those years. You got smicha 23, 24. There was no kolalim. Either you knew how to learn or you'll never know how to learn. That's what the attitude was. So uh, I, was, I went into the rabbinate. My first year was Lower Marian Synagogue, was the second rabbi there. And uh, let me put it this way. I was reelected by a vote of nine to seven on the board of trustees. And to use fancy English, that's a very Pyrrhic victory. I uh, tell the story and what the problems were. Charlie Liebman, who you may remember, Professor Liebman, he was a great Jewish sociologist. He became famous on an article he wrote in the early 60s, The Sociological Study of American Orthodoxy. There's a case study appendix to it. He talks about a young rabbi, cross out young rabbi and write in Arnold or Aaron Rothkopf. And he analyzes the nine who voted for me and the nine, seven who voted against, and his analysis is absolutely perfect. So um, while I'm there, Yeshiva University kept the promise they had made to me at their initiative that the first opening for Rosh Yeshiva, they would appoint me. Again, it's, there's a whole story behind this. Rapeshul Shechter knows it well. He's told it over to students. And if I tell it over, no one will believe me. But if he tells it, all right. He's a third party. At my wedding, the Rav kissed me in public, hugged me and kissed me when I finished the Divrei Torah after the Ketuvah, at the Midiguiz in those days. And when you spoke and the Rav was there, they didn't break you off because the Rav considered it to be Zion HaTorah if they don't let you finish. So uh, Mr. Abrams, who ran the yeshiva, sent for me and during Shevabrach as Arnold, what I saw, I can't believe, I told Rabbi Belkin, I don't know what he was talking about. It turned out the Rav, who never was that emotional in public and spoke about it, I was, I write about it, I was father never kissed him. They said to me, Rabbi Belkin and Miss Davis, the first opening, we're going to appoint you. Believe it or not, I got a telegram in March of 62. They want to see me at YU, the appointment with Dr. Belkin Monday morning. I got the telegram on Thursday, Monday morning, 10 o'clock. Well, big trip into New York with the Pennsylvania Railroad, the train uptown. And Dr. Belkin, again, you have to know Yiddish to appreciate it. I, I appoint you a Rosh Yeshiva, let's drink Lachaim, pulled out a bottle, we drank a Lachaim, and he made a, I make one condition, 
that you remain in the rabbinate. So I told him, well, I can't remain in Pennsylvania. We'll get you a shtela. He picked up the phone. Give me community service division. Again, it's a different world then. Vic Yella. Vic, a young man, I have a young man here, he needs a rabbinic position to be able to come to the yeshiva. And at that moment in time, uh, a doctor was becoming a Baal He was a Kohen married to Giorat, which caused his parents great anguish. His father was a Sheikhet. And he decided that he never divorced his wife, but he became a total from Jew. And in order to appease the memory of his father, he wanted to establish in the suburbs of Newark an orthodox shul with a machisa. They needed a rabbi. The shoe paid me $2,000 a year, and why you pay $2,000, in other words, uh, startup money. So I had 4000 from the yeshiva as a rebbe, and 4000 from the kahila, which really, I mean, I owe so much to why you, you understand? And I have to tell you, no one will believe me today, I built the first Orthodox shul in suburban Essex County. Today, it's filled with Torah, the President of the United States, his son-in-laws from Livingston, his grandchildren, the shuls, the schools. Wow. I began against all odds. And brick by brick, family by family, we built an Orthodox shul. You go back to Maplewood, South Orange today, you know, no one is alive who remembers me, and I can't be upset by that. I, uh, no one even knows my name there, which is the way life works. Today, what was the shul? There's a dormitory, there's a little yeshiva. It's Chabad, Chabad. An enlightened Chabad. It's not, uh, it's someone who grew up. His father was my dear colleague. I write about him, Rabbi Gomolkomilski. He's an accountant, he's the rabbi of the shul. They took over the church. The church became the shul. I once went back just to see the grounds. I couldn't believe it. The church, the sp spiral is gone. It's the shul. Uh, there's a state-of-the-art mikvah. There's an Arab. There's not, it's not a tremendous kahila because there's no housing. It's all one family housing, basically. So it's not hundreds and hundreds of families, but the kahila is alive and thriving. And it all goes back to 62 to 69. I was a very happy individual, very fulfilled. The proof is that the students I'm closest with are the students I taught at YU in the 60s. I remain like this with many, many of the students. Many are dead already and no longer alive, lower Lenu. But that's a sign they were kids of high school age a Rebbe has an influence. Today, like when I walk into class, everyone is older than me. Everyone wants to influence me. Why don't you have long clothes? Why don't you have a long beard and payas? Why don't you have a golden cane? Why don't you conduct yourself like a Rebbe? Uh, today, they want to influence me. Baruch Hashem, uh, when I give the shir, they're very happy to hear what I have to say. But in those days, you changed lives. And the Rav, by the way, the Rav said to me, oh, I hear about you. You excite American kids when you teach a Tysmus. And no, that was the greatest compliment in the world. Six-day war came, and the Levingers moved to Hebron. You know the story, slept on the floor of the police station. 
And Malka and I looked at each other, and after saying mainly Malka, she said, I'm going. You want to stay? Stay. We always say she brought me to Israel, and I kept her in Israel. That's, that's our vod. I didn't ask the rabbi, and not, not like a label, Green's a colonel of Rache. He went and asked the rabbi. He wanted to go. The rabbi told him, Chasva Khalila, you're successful in Canada. You cannot leave. I wrote the rabbi a letter. Rabbi, I'm going in Aliyah. I'm coming to meet you at your apartment. I'm this and this day, this time, to get a birchat preda. And that's what I did. I went to Rav Lifshitz, the Mashkiach, Rav Yaakov Meshachain lesson, and um, I said goodbye to everybody. And uh, knowing nobody and knowing nothing, whoever lived in Israel uh, is beyond words, with no money, basically, just a few thousand dollars we had left from the sale of the house in Maplewood, which was a parsonage, but I had the equity. Uh, and had nice balabatim. They were very kind. Everything handled properly, covered. They were very thankful. Hanging in the office is actually the invitation. It's on the wall to uh, the farewell breakfast the week before we sailed. And everyone was crying because I was the only rabbi they knew. And I had Taka built it from the ground. And I didn't make the mistakes. I didn't get involved in uh, internal politics like I did in um, Lower Marion. And I told them, what are you crying? I'm going to Jerusalem. And we arrived, and I had had this contract given to me in America by the publishing house of the encyclopedia. I was a staff editor. How did I get the contract? When I applied for Aliyah, I gave them my CV, and I already had a contract with JPS for the publication of Bernard Revel, my doctorate. It had to be revised. I was working on it. But JPS at that time was like odd scroll to the 10th power. It was so, wow, and accepted by everyone, JPS. So um, from the encyclopedia, they were looking for someone who knows something of Shas Paiske and Yiddishkeit history. I had a doctorate in Jewish history, two masters. I mean, I had what they were looking for, and I knew how to write English. So I started working in the encyclopedia. I got off the boat July 5th. 1969. They wanted me to start work the next day. I said, I can't. I need a week. Are we in an absorption center? I started work in Israel July 12, 1969. While I'm working for the encyclopedia, a miracle was happening. Something I knew about in America, because they also interviewed me, but they didn't, couldn't offer me a formal job yet. But they said, we'll need people like you. Jewish agency came up with, I, I give you all the details in Washington, I'm being very brief now. Jewish agency came up with an idea to export Torah to the Anglo world. That year, after Sukkot, the first school exporting Torah to the Anglo world that would become the granddaddy of endless schools and ultimately hundreds of thousands, if not a quarter of a million youngsters from all over the world have studied in Israel, a good percentage remained or came back in Aliyah. I get a call from the dean, the founding dean, Moshe Horowitz, Zeichad Sadek Levracha. He knew my brother from Washington because my brother had to do work in the, in the hospital there, Walter Reed, in lieu of going into the army. And they davened in the same shul. So Whitey Horowitz calls me, uh, calls me, sends me a telegram. There was no, we had no phone. There were no phone. It was a different world. 
sends me a telegram. He wants to meet me at this and this. But I still remember where the, it was a side office of the Jewish agency in the Chov HaMalat. So I meet him and he says to me, I know you have a doctorate in Jewish history. I don't just want Gemara and BMT, but Medrash Torah. I want more subjects, but teach in an exciting fashion because Jewish history can be boring. You have to excite these students. Lo and behold, I began teaching in BMT. I think the first class was in November of 1969. Ten students, not all are alive. Some of them I'm in touch with until today or their widows, etc. And uh, that was the start. Two years later, the encyclopedia ended. Keta Publishing offered me 2,000 lira a month to remain permanent as an editor. A lot of money at that time but I had to go back to teaching full-time. And in 71, I already was teaching full-time plus, and everything afterwards is like a fairy tale. And uh, I had such hashkacha pratet because I was offered very important positions, jobs, very big titles, Rosh Yeshiva, Dean, Rector, president, good money, I knew how to turn it down. I said, all I can do is be machadesh and teach. Chaim Kedrukman, one of the greatest Rabbanim Sadikim of our generation, offered me a safe spot on the religious Zionist ticket. I turned them down. I said, Chaim Atayachol Anilo. I had to apologize because he le- he's a master teacher. He left it, was in the Knesset, had enough seichel to turn that down. Don't have to go further. Then I had a miracle, which again is worthy of a movie. After the Yom Kippur War, the army got after everyone. They needed everyone who could walk upright. Till the Yom Kippur War, you were an American, they didn't draft you because the State Department objected. I get called up, had to wait till it was a group of people in my age bracket, I was no youngster, and 76, by Jordanian war bonds, I told my students, I'm going to be gone for a good few weeks, basic training, you're better off buying Jordanian war bonds than depending upon an Israeli army with Aaron Rakefet in it. Well, I have a principle which I've told to all my grandchildren, and I tell it to my great-grandchildren, when you do something, do it seriously. I wound up in an army, never dreamt I would be shooting, throwing grenades. I was the Chayel Mitztayin. Again, read Washington. You'll see what happened during my basic training and a general sent for me to meet me. And I went on to a wonderful career in the army for 15 years, uh, a senior lecturer in the rabbinate. I was all over the world. Uh, I fought in Lebanon. I, was in, I have a war ribbon. I was, I was in Syria. I was in Lebanon. It was in Africa when we still were down in Egypt, etc. Always lecturing, always inspiring and some of the people that heard me became total B'nai Torah as a result. My wife didn't believe it. One time we're walking downtown Jerusalem and an army car stops and 
a soldier runs out, I still remember the name. I'm going back 40, 45 years now. Avram Kadosh. And he hugs me. And he says, And he said, it brought him back, and he hugged me and kissed me, and my wife said, now I believe everything you say. One time I was in Machna Yehuda, and a big truck is pulling up with Coca-Cola. The driver sees me, parks the truck, he blocks traffic, hugs me. He heard me in the Okay. That was the army, opened many doors. Uh, later in life, you're looking at the man. Again, I, I don't need credit, but I changed the whole army policy with the missing in action. If, if we have time, I'll, I'll tell you about it in a few minutes. Uh, everything shifted gears in May of 1980. I get a call. Uh, a lady gets on the phone. Haravra Kefet came. You're willing to accept a phone call, but you can't reveal the contents. I have to be honest with you, I've gotten many calls like that, I'll tell you from whom, students who are doing terrible things, and like they think I'm a priest, I can tell them, say a Hail Mary, and uh, so I remember a few weeks before, a lady had called me from one of my classes, and she did my student, didn't give me a name, obviously, and I, I don't want to go into details, but Anishatish, etc., I don't want to spell it out. So I figured it's another uh, student playing one of these games with me. But you got to be nice. I say, Bavakasha. A man gets on the phone who becomes the second most influential person in my life beyond the Rav. You weren't allowed to mention his name until the year 2000 when they lifted the security clause. Aryeh Kroll, Zechad Sadiq Lavracha, who got Pras Yisrael. He discovered the secret that People like myself have a dual personality. On one hand, I'm an American. I can talk baseball, what I know about the Maggio and Williams and Usual, the Gadoyle Meshav and Greenberg in my time. The kids today have yet to learn. I'm an American. I'm a total Israeli. Served in the army, speak perfect Hebrew, read Hebrew like I read English. Uh, what do you want out of me? All my children here, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, a Shevet Shalem. We have dual identity. We have two passports. Harav Rakefet, Tishma Tov, Pikshu Mimeni Lilamed Gemara B'Moskova, Ani Zakuk L'Anashim Shayodim Eich Lilamed, Ata Muchan Lilamed Gemara B'Moskova? Bavakasha? Like in Iran, I say yes. Just to translate what that means is, are you willing to teach? Are you willing to teach Gemara in Russia? I say yes. Who will you go with? I say my wife, Yafer. He makes up a meeting with us. Little did I know that I was talking to someone from the Mossad. I don't know how they got to me. It's a branch in the Mossad called Nativ. I write about this again. My book, there's a book written about us, about our whole operation in Malkan Aaron Rakethet by the Mossad. It's called Benetiv Hadmama, The Silent Path, published by Merkaz Shazar. So uh, he makes up a meeting place, very hard to find. I later learned he did that purposely because we would have to find the dresses in Russia. He wanted to see if we had the ability to find something that's difficult. And what year was this, by the way? 1980, May. 
We were briefed for half a year. And in January 1981, we went into Russia for the first time. The next decade, my wife and I lived a dual existence. I was very, thank God, very successful in what I had to do. And we used to say about Aye Kroll, he couldn't find his way on any Israeli street, but he knew everything going on in every street in Russia. And that's correct. He was a kibbutznik from Saad, one of the founders. He lived in, a, no one in the kibbutz knew what he was doing. He lived in a little apartment right near the Russian center of the Mossad in, in a whole complex that doesn't stand today. It's Sarona Park in Tel Aviv, Rehov Albert Mendler, how well I remember it. They had one of the first computers in Israel, an entire wall. You have no idea how big it was with flashing lights, the name of every person who requested to leave Russia, every Jew that they knew about. Well, we were Matzliach, and I said to Aryeh, look, I know a lot of people. I'll try to help you to find people to teach in Russia. And I'm proud to tell you, until the fall of communism, Malka and I actually sent well over 200 people to Russia. It continues the teaching. It's an unbelievable story of what we have done. And people would ask, how did you risk your health, your happiness. I don't say our lives, we had American passports, but believe me, it was very frightening. And among my shluchim, uh, using the Chabad terminology, was, I'm looking at his picture on the wall, was David Applebaum, Rabbi Dr. David Applebaum, Hashem Yikom Damo. He was in jail. And I, I write about it, please, Get Washington, it's published by the OU. It's worth reading. It's not that I need the royalties today, believe me. It's worth your studying that volume. I have another eight volumes. All right, if you don't read about Rebel or Silver or the Rav or, or, my, or my Hashkafic talks, a halakha that I wrote. I have a 10th volume I'm working on now, which I consider the most important of anything I will ever publish. Because for the first time, I express an opinion. And you'll see it when it's ready. So uh, we got very involved and no one knew what we were doing. We lived a normal life. I taught, I ate, I learned. I'm constantly learning. I'm going through Shasna while Haseda with Rishonim and Achronim the third time. I'm in the middle of Shasna. The third time I'll be going through it. So you have to that. Constantly preparing Sheurim. And uh, this was Russia. The army was terrific. They would cover for me. People would ask, where are you? Oh, I'm in Miluim. No one knew I was in Russia. It worked out very, very well. Every day that the army wanted me, I would give a lecture at the Central Army Command Post in Tel Aviv, have lunch, and across the street, an appointment with Aryeh Kroll. To get into the army, there was one level of security. To get into CRA Kroll, there were three levels because of that computer. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Three levels of security that you had to go through. Now, why is all this important? Because when I finish basic training, I come home, Pesach, and Mirfabreng and I had some of the fellas, the rabbis who were with me, all older people, we were celebrating Pesach. It was a moment in time in my house, and the phone rings. And on the phone is Whitey Horowitz. He says, Rabbi I just got a call from the head of the culture department. We 
desperately need you to do something. We don't feel there's a chance of success. This is the background, but you're our last straw. Stories as follows, Mr. Joe Gruss. But again, I can go into long detail on this, but not now. Bothered the Rav, Rebbe, you have to teach Torah in Jerusalem. You're the greatest Rebbe alive. Jerusalem's the heart of the Jewish people. He bothered the Rav enough that, okay, okay, I'll build you a campus. Well, the Rav figured, Mr. Gris, will build my campus, Mashiach will be here. Didn't know who Mr. Gris was. Mr. Gris built a campus. This is who I'm talking to you from. I would say this campus today is worth $100 million. There's this the main building, dormitories, room to build two more large structures without any zoning problem. Wow. And this is the heart of Jerusalem today. When it was built, it was orchards. It was in Yenemsfeld. I don't know how to translate that. Yenemsfeld, the outskirts. The Rav is not coming. Mr. Gris is very disappointed. He's upset with the Rav. Teddy Kolak is putting pressure on Gris. The building is standing. It's now 76. The building already was ready in 75. I saw it. I walked into it because I would walk past here to go teach in Michlala. And Cody Kolak says, it's a security hazard. You have to give it to David Yellen's teacher's college. Mr. Chris is asking, what is that? Well, it's a secular teacher's college, Jews, Arabs, religious, irreligious. It's, you know, the Western world of today. Postmodern, as they say. So uh, Teddy Kolak draws up the papers. Mr. Gris didn't yet sign, but the papers are on Teddy Kolak's desk. The Jewish agency arranges for me to meet Mr. Gris in the King David Hotel. That night, at an end of party in my house, I take off for the King David Hotel. And here's this little kid from the Bronx named Arnie Rothkopf slash Aaron Rakefet. And here's this multi-billionaire who conquered America from Poland to America, wound up with the Rav. It's a story unto itself because he had a brother who was very close to the Rav and he brought Joe Gris to the Rav and to the Rebetzin with whom he became very friendly. They helped him with a personal problem. And then get at Yiddish. He was always happy to talk Mamalashin with the Rebetzin, with the Rav. And I say to Mr. Gris, why are you unhappy that the Rav is not coming? What is the purpose of Yiddishkeit? It's Misora passing it on. His students will continue the Misora. All our knowledge is from the Rav, all our teaching, all our outlook. We will do what the Rav can't. We're youngsters. He's an old man today. And with those words, Mr. Gris and I both started to cry. And we fell on each other's shoulders. The next morning, he announced he's giving the building to BMT, to the Jewish agency, but the ownership will be in the hands of Yeshiva University. He felt he didn't have to give it to the Jewish agency. They're wealthy enough. But why you, the Rav? Mr. Gris used to come every year 
wherever I was teaching, I had to stop. They'd send a car for me. I'd had lunch with him. We'd walk through the building. He had someone, an interferer, someone walking behind him. This has to be fixed. This has to. The guy would write it down. A month later, Mr. Griss would send an aide to check that it was fixed. Halavai, he'd be around today to scare the ones running the building. We got a lot that has to be fixed. But Corona, you know, everything came to a halt because all the money had to go into preparing the building so Rakefit can teach you and do the corona plague. You have no idea what an achievement this was. Not that I knew it at the time. At the time, I was a kid. Later in life, someone who worked for the OU was their travel agent, Weingarten. When his father died, he mentioned to me, I expressed condolences, this is Weingarten, David Weingarten, who was a, a travel agent, and his son, this son took over the business, Mayor Weingarten, and he says to me, my father used to daven for your well-being every day. I said, for me? I said, I met your father once or twice, what are you talking about? He says, you don't know what you did for my father. I said, what are you talking? And he told me, this mountain that I'm on, here is Machon Lev, here is Gris. Here is Kolreg High School for Girls, Hannah Weingarten High School for Girls, and then Michala. His father was building the high school for girls in memory of his mother. When he found out Teddy Kolek is giving it to David Yellen, David Weingarten went to see the mayor, and he said, how can you do that? These are religious girls. You're ruining it. Kolek, his Hebrew was... Poor. His English was excellent. He cursed David Weingarten with every cuss word you can imagine. It get the H out of my office, you rotten dash dash. Da. Do you do you think this is Mayor Sharim? I got the whole conversation from Mayor. He said, My father went home and sat shiver for his investment. Two days later, he gets a call from the head of the Jewish agency, Torah Culture, Moshe Krona. The building is in the hands of Torah. And David says, my hi, what happened? And Krona said, harav rakefet. And now I understood why he blessed me every day. So whenever I tell this story, I say, you don't have to believe a word I'm saying, because I don't believe it either. But check with Mayor Weingarten. Finally, on Gris, let me end off. What happened with Gris was very interesting. This is where the ultimate reward, the Rebani Shalom, repays me. I have to be honest, I would have remained half a Tamatachim, half an Amaretz. I mean, what, uh, you give Shurim in a yeshiva, some Nashim, the Sikin. Gris, the day it opened, the student said to me, what, you're in the building, you won't teach? This was students that didn't mind come with them in BMT. 78 we began a formal program here due to Mr. Gris asking me, is there a formal program? I say, no, they attend, those who want the second year classes of BMT, uh, whom I brought into BMT, my own classes. He says, no, I want a formal program. And he beat Rabbi Lamb on his desk. Rabbi Lamb then was preoccupied with saving yeshiva, was almost bankrupt right when he became president. All right, we'll make a formal program. They have put so Rabbi David Miller, fabulous, took over to guide it. Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, students said to me, I want you. Nechama Legrit says to me, Ani Gamkein, I brought her in. And in Gris, I was free to teach what I wanted. 
So beginning with 78, when the film program began, I, Sunday class, response to literature. I went into response to literature. This, there I combined all my learning as a Rosh Yeshiva and my doctorate from Bernard Treffel. I had a, if you've heard my shurim in response to literature, I had letters from Rabbanim. You changed the whole understanding. It's not just halacha, it's the world of response literature. It opens up to you the way Jews lived, the way Jews thought, or the, the way Jews were challenged, what life was about. And Baruch Hashem, I mastered a little bit. <laughs> and I haven't repeated a shir since I began in 78, and I dealt with all Dalit Helke Shukhanarach and the hardest topics you can imagine, including, as you know, published an entire volume, 300, 400 pages on Aguna, the classic Aguna, Mamdi's the hardest you desire. That was Sunday. A year later, the boy said, Rebbe, we want the other side of you on Monday. Whatever you want, but not Shasim Paiskim, philosophy, theology, Dashanut, Jewish history. And there I began in 79, 22 years I spent on the Rav, which gave birth to my two volumes on the Rav. 10 years I spent on questions students have asked me and what I've answered. What I'm working on now is an outflow from one topic I covered during those 10 years. Then I gave a three and a half year, four year course on uh, the history of Torah in modern times from Mendelssohn on. And then I began the history of Torah in the United States. I don't know if it's nine years, eight years, 10 years ago. You have to check because I have students that have been with me now 20, 30 plus years. And Baruch Hashem, now we're finishing Synagogue Council Board of Rabbis. I have one more lecture, one and a half, two. Then, to be intellectually honest, I'm going into Torah Vedas and Torah Masorah. And I'm making it clear, I don't want any criticisms. I want to understand it from within and in a positive fashion. And then if the Rebani will spare me, I need another two years, Satma, their tremendous impact in the United States, who they are, what they believe. And as I've said a thousand times over, you think you're a Zionist? Do you know the Satma Rebbe's writings by heart? Until you know them by heart, you can't be a Zionist. Once you know, then you'll understand who you are, where you're coming from, and what you have to deal with. So, Be'ezrat Hashem, that is the story, very briefly, of one little kid from the Bronx who, thank God, took the message of Teira in Yeshiva University of his time, who mastered Yiddish, which came in so handy in my work in Russia, outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg, every other city, Wynn, Vilna, Minsk, Riga, anyone over 40, his Jew, 40 or over at that period, his native language was Yiddish. I gave Sherman Yiddish, etc., etc., and I took the message of B'nai Akiva seriously. I didn't become a kibbutznik, but the ability not to let money blind me was crucially important to the little bit I've achieved in life. I just want to ask you a few questions. You know, you, you spoke about many times about the Rav and we have a diverse audience. Not everyone's familiar with who that is. You know, it, it means something in the world you're coming from. It might mean other things you know, from other backgrounds, but obviously you're, you're referring to Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, one of the great leaders of American Judaism in the 20th century and, and the longtime Torah teacher at Yeshiva University. Speak a little bit about just for those who are unfamiliar 
who was this man and why did he have such an outsized impact on your life? Obviously, you gave a 22-year course on who he is, but in brief. I can't really answer your question now, time factors. Uh, I published two volumes on the Rav, which are different than all the other volumes published in the sense. I, first of all, have a monograph biography, about 90 pages, maybe more. Uh, so you have the biography of his life. I can tell you this work was published 20 years ago, 21 years ago. No one has found a mistake in the biography. So that's important to know that it's an honest biography. People were looking, when it comes to the rub, they look with magnifying glasses. What's important about my two volumes is the rub speaks for himself. I put together with Siyata Deshmaya, God's help, Endless times the Rav talked about his life from tapes, from lectures I heard, from his writings. I translated everything, be it from Yiddish to English, Hebrew to English, everything is in English translated. Absolutely accurate, honest translations. There's nothing of Rakefit in it. It's the Rav, we say in Ivrit Neto, it's the Rav himself speaking. To summarize his life, it's very simple. Uh, he grew up in a total Lithuanian world. He grew up in a world that he later becomes an Agudist, which is not in favor of Zionism. That itself was a change from his original family, which was totally opposed to Zionism. All right, this I put it to Israel. He comes to America in 1932, and no one of any stature like the Rav so beautifully adjusted to the Western world. If you read the article about me in Ami magazine, the editor who interviewed me in this very office and had come to my class the week earlier was overjoyed with my description of the Rav, a Torah Jew, a Litvak in the Western world. And this was the Rav. He had a PhD. He was at home with world philosophy, mathematics, science. In that respect, he was very, very similar to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Their knowledge was epic-making. They knew each other from Berlin. What was beautiful about the Rav was that in the classroom, we were back in the Lushen. It was brisk. It was Lithuania. You had no idea you were sitting in Washington Heights in the United States. But the same Rebbe encouraged you, you need college, you need university, you don't want to be an umglik, an umglik. You know what that means in Yiddish? A tragedy. You have to make a living. I dealt with people whose brains were washed and at the age, of, you can't go to college, you can't have a profession. The age of 25, their lives were ruined. They cried. They're, they're married. No way to support. The Gemara says if you don't give your child a profession, he winds up being a thief. I need not elaborate. Unfortunately, like every other work in Chazal, that's also absolutely true. But that was the Rav. He later becomes a Mizrahiite. I have given endless lectures published. I'm going to publish more. How he went from Aguda to Mizrahi becomes a great Mizrahiite. And the talk he gave in 1956, on the eighth anniversary of the State of Israel, Koldo Dida Fake, no one has equaled that in the 20th century. It's even beyond Rav Avram Yitzhak Cohen Cook. It's a masterpiece. It's studied in every Israeli high school, religious high school, every yeshiva at Hezda. 
everyone is familiar with the Koldo-Dido fake. Then the question is, well, why didn't the Rav go on Aliyah? Well, you can ask the same question. Why didn't the Lubavitcher Rebbe go on there? Rebbe Meishas, Einstein, why? The answer is very simple. They all found themselves, their niche in life. When you find your niche, it's very hard to leave. But I always answer people about the Rav. He must have been doing something right because the majority of his descendants all live in Israel. So Baruch Hashem, something right he was doing 100%. Rav Moshe too, many descendants living in Israel. The Lubavitcher Rebbe had no children, unfortunately, but his influence, Rakefet always says, in my opinion, had he come in 68 and reclaimed Hebron, which was a Lubavitch enclave until it was decimated by the Arab hordes in 29, that would be a different world today. Because the influence you have from Yushalayim, from Hebron, from Israel, from Tzvat, from Tiberia, is infinitely more than the influence from anywhere else in the Jewish diaspora. But all right, that's my opinion. What are some of the books you've written? You mentioned them quickly. Washington is, is your autobiography. Is that your memoir? It's a scholarly memoir. Washington is a scholarly memoir. It's uh, 530 pages. When I say scholarly, is I've read many memoirs. And generally, you'll find many mistakes because people's zikaron, what they remember, is not always totally accurate. In Washington, anything I wrote historically, I checked out to the end. So far, there's not been one correction. It's a little bit different. It's not a memoir so much about myself. It's about what I've been part of. As one review said, it's the history of the Jewish people in the modern times. Well, I don't know the Jewish people, but certainly the history of Jews, America to Israel. Yeah, I would agree with that. Gives you good insight into the period. So it's not so much Rakefet, it's what he's seen and what he's been part of. The Washington is called from Washington Avenue to Washington Street. I was born and raised on Washington Avenue in the Bronx. Interestingly enough, my father lived on Washington Avenue. His parents, I have a picture right here in the office of my grandmother. I'm in the carriage and she's shaking the carriage. And that picture was taken on Washington Avenue on 174th. And I grew up 180th in Washington. And Washington Street, I walked to the Koto, Washington Street, around the King David, and I had muzzle. It's Washington Avenue to Washington Street, meaning in New York, it's Washington Avenue, and here it's Taco Washington Street. The picture of Washington Street on the cover, I took myself, Washington Street. So I have a student, Dr. Norman Gold, who lives in West Hempstead. And Normie said, Rebbe, I'll go and take a picture. If anything happens to me, it doesn't matter. We can't afford to lose you. Normie went and took the picture of Washington Avenue, the sign right at the corner, 180th in Washington. So that's the book. The other volumes, uh, my first volume is on Bernard Rebel. That's gone through four editions. The second volume on the Sue, the era of Laser Sue, which may be my most famous work because it made great inroads into the Haredi world as well. It's gone through four editions. Third volume is Rakafaran Khalikanaf, Rakafaran Khalik Bet. Then comes two volumes of the Rav, the world of Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. Then comes Washington. Then come two more volumes 
of Rakafet Aron and a fifth is in preparation. The volumes of Rakafet Aron, uh, cyclamens of Aaron, it's a play on Pichai Aron in the Torah. You have there my research in Torah history. I'm very interested in Torah history in the Lithuanian world. Halachic articles, Reb Meisha Feinstein, Reb Yaakov Weinberg, Reb Yitzhak Isaac Halevi. Then you have tremendous work done by Rabbi Dr. Yaakov Weinstein, my student, who works in Princeton, lives in East Brunswick. He put from my shirim, he wrote up my shirim on a gunner, on mamzerat, an artificial insemination, and hafkat kedushin. Right now he's working on a suin ezrachiyim. I asked him, why not my Sherman or Rechayim in Yeridea, in Chayshin Mishpat? So he said, what interests him most is Eben Ezra. No, I couldn't argue with him. Ain't Adam Lomeid, Al-Mashaliba Rotser, personally studies, the Gemara says what he wants to. So he's put that together and he's done a beautiful, beautiful job. And the Kain Hala, everything should be Lekavit or Lekiferet. And you said you're working on a volume now that's more opinion-oriented? Well, I'm working on a volume now where it's going to be this uh, civil marriage will be the first part, my Sheyurim. And then I'm dealing with my lectures on Das Teira. And I'm getting involved in revealing information that has never been written about, including what happened in the Mossad. I'm allowed to talk about it now. The security course was lifted. And then I'm going to express an opinion on what I think is really the proper understanding of Das Teira. Yes, I'm on Kacham and Das Teira. I deal with it all. And uh, this is a topic worthy of analysis. I uh, believe if you read my work fairly, you might have, it might blend together with both the right-wing world and the centrist world. Uh, on the other hand, there'll be people who will say, no, uh, the rabbis speak with divine inspiration, which is only partially true. It's not that you can say it's like Rabbi Weinberg said in his article in Jewish Observer, a batko, it's a little less than a heavenly voice to cite him syllable by syllable. So a lot of material in the article that is, with all that's been published in Das Teira, I've taken it. Uh, many, many steps further than Pinchas Hirschbrun, what he writes about with the Shanghai story. Uh, but w- what I'm very happy about is that it gives me a chance to tell the story of demonstrations for Russian Jewry and then bring it right down to Aaron Rakefet and what happened here in Israel. Until now, this has never been public, but it's time to speak about it. Why the name change? He started as, as Arnold Rothkopf. And Aaron Rakefet, and you see your name in different places with different... No, no. My name always has to be Rakefet Desh Rothkoff for scholarly reasons, because I published under Rothkoff, and then it's Rakefet. So if you look up any university catalog, if you look up Rakefet, it says, see Rakefet Desh Rothkoff. You look up Rakefet, it says, see Rakefet Desh Rothkoff. No, uh, it's a Rambam in Hilchot Shuva. When you do Shuva, you become a different person. Everything changes, even your name. When you go on Aliyah, you become a total Jew. With all due respects to where you're sitting, you're not a total Jew yet. Whether you like it or not, don't tell me, like I've seen some people in the good world, I can't believe my eyes. Uh, the concept of Israel is a spiritual concept. You can have Israel and Borough Park. Well, that's the Pittsburgh platform, 1885, word by word, basically. You're the same boat with the reformers in Germany, Berlin is our Jerusalem, and Germany is our Palestine, Lower Lane. You have to rip Korea when you say those words. So when you go in Aliyah, you have to change the name. You have to hebraize it. 
Now, Hebratizing it was my wife's idea. Rothkopf is an anagram. It's Rakefet is a cyclamen, a beautiful flower. On my door in Berlin 18 is a cyclamen. It's an anagram, Rakefet Rothkopf. I don't have any sons. I only have daughters. So the name is lost anyway. Baruch Hashem, nothing to complain. <laughs> the only problem is Rakefet is the first name of a lady. And many, many times... They look at me, Rakefet, they foha gavetet. Where is the lady? Follow, they foha gavetet, they foha isha. So I always go out of my way to tell them, Rakefet, shen mishpacha, kimo haperach. All right? It's a family name, Baruch Hashem. We happen to be, and this was certified by the police, the only Rakefet family name in the state of Israel. How is it certified by the police? It's also a true story. They called me Two days before Yom Kippur, years ago, they're looking for someone named Aaron Rakefet. I said, what are you looking for him? An accident in Tel Aviv. I told him I haven't driven in Tel Aviv at that time in 30 years, 40 years. So I said, and Rakefet, first name. Maybe you're looking for somebody with the inverse, with the last name Aaron and first name Rakefet. Yeah. He called me back two hours later, the policeman. He said, I want to thank you. You saved me hours of work. They were talking, looking for a lady named Rakefet Aaron who was involved in the accident. And then he told me, you should know you're the only family with the last name Rakefet in the entire state of Israel. So Baruch Hashem, I hope there'll be more Rakafat in Israel, that's the plural, but right now, I have the unique distinction of having a last name, which is one of a kind. You picked a unique name when you, when you Hebraicized it, that's for sure. My final question is just, you have all these different accolades and accomplishments, you've been so many places, done so much, and yet, the moniker that seems to resonate most with you is the word Rebbe which means teacher, but of course, those who understand, it means a lot more than teacher. It means a, a life guide, a mentor, a word that can't really be translated, but it's one that seems to mean a lot to you. Why is that title so important and so central to your identity? Well, the truth of the matter is that you hit the nail on the head because if students refer to me as harav or doctor or professor, after they've heard two or three shirim of mine and they still call it that way, I tell them they're embarrassing me. Uh, I said, if you learn something from me, it's Rebbe. If you didn't, it's Aaron or Ani, whatever name you want. Look, there's a very simple question. Why did God give us a Torah Shabbat path? You all know there are two Torahs, the written, the oral. Take the oral and write it up. And even if you'll say it'll take 25 volumes, so what? You read the Torah 25 years. We read it one year. You read 25 years. You know, it's no chiv the orator to read the Torah every year. This is all a takana of the sages throughout the millennium. The Gemara already in Baba, in Baba Kama, in the, paper, the Gemara already talks about Torah. So you have to read Monday, Thursday, Shabbos, but it doesn't say how much you have to read. All right, 10 psukim, whatever. Ten psukim, but not a whole sedra. There was one uh, a minute to read a third of a sedra. So you can have a, a, everything written, everything written. All right, this is a very important question. I've lectured on it extensively. But one answer, the most basic answer, is very simple. Torah goes by communication, by misora. 
by generation to generation passing on the Masorah. Torah Chaimhi, it's living. You can't get Torah out of a Murray Bund book. Something that is lifeless cannot give you the full impact of what it means to be a Jew. The romance of the Torah people, that's what I will call it. Without a Rebbe, you are lost. You can be learned. There are professors at universities who know Talmud, know Mishnah, who was the first one to translate the Mishnah into English. Canon Denby of Yerushalayim, who studied at Hebrew U. Remember the name, a beautiful translation. But it's a translation of Mishnah, but it's not Torah. Torah is the ongoing interaction. Generation to generation shall praise the Almighty. And that's why a Rebbe is so important. You know, according to the Halacha, your Rebbe comes ahead of your father, right or wrong. You have to return to Metziah. I mean, this has tremendous halachic implications. Without the Rebbe, we have no future. Had Hitler succeeded in cutting off the Jewish people, we wouldn't be here today. Thank God we are here alive, producing, continuing, underline the word continuing. And that was my talk with Mr. Gris. And this is how we have Gris Coel. I want to wish everyone my host, a beautiful interview. You should go Mechayel El Chayel with tremendous Hatzlacha. You should bring many Jews to Torah and together, La Lot to join us here in the miracles we are accomplishing in Jerusalem. Thank you very, very much. Amen. Rabbi Aaron Rakefet, thank you so much for joining us. God bless. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.